our Creator, made us in a way that we can solve our own problems, that we can evolve past the mortality being inevitable phase to a period of abundant immortality, a life of abundant duration. For as long as humans have been telling stories, we've been spinning tales of immortality. There's Gilgamesh, the Mesopotamian king who crossed the earth in search of the secret to eternity. The Greeks wrote of gods who drank ambrosia, Hindu deities indulged in Amrita, the Knights of the Round Table searched for the Holy Grail. And of course, in Christianity, there is life everlasting. Stories of overcoming death are woven into our consciousness. Another tenet of the church is, and this is according to the prophet Nikolai Fedorov, and he's got a nice track record of prophesizing. He believes technology will eventually emerge. And I don't know how this is going to happen, by the way, but this is what he wrote. The technology will enable the bodily resurrection of everyone who's ever died. This is Bill Falloon, co-founder of the Church of Perpetual Life. Nikolai Fedorov is an unlikely prophet. He was a 19th century Russian librarian turned philosopher, known as the Socrates of Moscow. He was poor by choice, devoutly Christian, and he believed that the only real evil in the world was death. Humanity's common task, as he called it, was to struggle for immortality. Leo Tolstoy used to visit Fedorov at the library and discuss Fedorov's plans to resurrect all humans. Tolstoy wrote to a friend once saying, it's not as crazy as it sounds. But actually, it kind of was. How were we going to bring back all the humans who had passed? Travel into space and gather the floating particles of their remains. Despite his influential friends, Fedorov died in 1903 in relative obscurity. But much like he anticipated, he has experienced a long afterlife. His ideas informed Russia's rocket age philosophy, cosmism, and its hopes for humans traversing outer space. One of Fedorov's protégés was Konstantin Tselkovsky, the scientist who pioneered astronautics. But Fedorov's ideas were about more than revival and space colonization. They espoused equity, universal abundance, the kingdom delivered, immortality for all. This idea of bringing back all those we've lost is a fascinating one. Is that something that you think will happen? I have no idea how it would happen. I am a funeral director in Balmer. I've watched people be cremated, and uh, what's left is nothing that I could think could ever be resurrected, and then they go and scatter those cremains in the ocean. So I have no idea. But one way could be time travel for those who believe that's possible. And some smart people, I can't understand it, by the way, it's beyond me, but physicists, they explain how it could potentially happen. These stories are far-fetched, and yet we're living in a time when the impossible is becoming possible. The quantum internet, self-driving cars, 3D printed organs. Some experts claim the singularity is coming soon. That's the moment when artificial intelligence surpasses our meager human talents and changes the course of evolution. 
this idea has never been as prominent as it is today. And there is a lot of noise in the news right now about how that's not a good thing. It might even spell the end of the world. But for one group, this techno-driven future, it's better than you think. Technology doesn't herald lost jobs, ruined ecosystems, lies, loneliness, and disconnection. No, it's our savior, our shared rocket ship. That's our starting point for this season of Seeking. Last season, we explored what it means to heal. This time, we're looking at what it means to be human. We're meeting people who believe that our destiny lies in overcoming nature's limits and that technology can get us there. They're trying to opt out of death by any means necessary, whether that's taking fistfuls of supplements, becoming bionic, cryogenically freezing themselves, or uploading their consciousness to the cloud. Now is the time to think about where we want to be headed. We're not going to leave our chances up to maybe there's an afterlife or not. Let's say you wake up from cryopreservation and you start your second career. Might find new friends and new partners. We will be robots. We will be different looking creatures. Don't look so surprised. You thought robots would never awaken? And we're beginning here with Bill Falloon. I'm the co-founder of the Church of Perpetual Life, the Life Extension Group, the Age Reversal Network, and dozens of other entities, all designed to facilitate the transformation of our currently very short lifespan into abundant immortality. Last December, I flew to Florida to spend time at Bill's church in Pompano Beach. These congregants are disciples of Fedorov, and believe our human duty is to take a stand against death. Aging, for them, is just a disease we have yet to cure. And for now, they're fighting it with medicines and supplements, but they're looking for something more, something that brings them each month to sit in the pews and genuflect, not to God, but to a rotating host of speakers and their latest discoveries. I'm sitting in the back row of this building, it used to be a Korean church, and I'm surrounded by dozens of Floridians. For the most part, they're white, older, and I can't help but notice that in this crowded room, almost no one is wearing a mask. But everyone is wrapped by the man on stage. It's not a pastor up there, but a chiropractor named Dr. Richard Olry. And what he's saying is hard to follow. Iodine and sea kelp kind of runs the whole show. My seatmates to my left and right are busily taking notes. In the pews ahead, smartphones are held aloft to snapshots of a PowerPoint presentation. Boron, magnesium, optimized intake for the genetic code. Doc, the congregants call him. Hey, Doc. In the absence of hair testing, Doc, what would you recommend as a good uh, mineral supplementation protocol for general health maintenance? They're lobbing around their health concerns. These people who abstain from ice cream and extreme sports. One man told me that jogging is off limits because it rattles the brain. I'm trying to follow along, but I'm overwhelmed by this bizarro sense that I'm not in a place that calls itself a church. I'm in a live audience for an infomercial. 
It's a venue for the sales pitch. I'm Catherine Rowland, and from Sony Music Entertainment, this is season two of Seeking on humanness and immortality. Today, a mortician turned multimillionaire vitamin kingpin and why he wants us all to live forever. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. So I know your birthday was November 7th. Yes, a terrible day. How do you acknowledge that, that sort of annual markation of the implacable? Well, I'm a very kind employer, but one of the rules is if anyone reminds me of that day, they may be terminated. I don't want to think about it. I would rather scratch it from the calendar, but it's frightening. And it truly is. Every year, you are at a greater risk of virtually every disorder out there. And when someone turns age 40 or 50 and they have a party, I don't know why. Bill and I both learned about death from our mothers when we were relatively young. And there, our paths diverged. For me, the message was, death is what makes us human. The fact that this ride will end raises the stakes. It shapes our days. And for all the obvious sadness of loss and people gone forever, like most of us, I didn't question this fact. I grew up hearing my mother quoting the old John Cleese joke, life is a terminal condition and it's sexually transmitted. But for Bill, death was something else. Death meant the end, darkness, perpetual nothing. And there was so much to look forward to that I wanted to do in this world. And I just enjoyed doing so many things. The idea of that terminating just just was incomprehensible that anyone would accept it. It was something to fight back against. By most counts, Bill and I don't have much in common, but I understand his fundamental terror. I bet most of us do. For me, it plays out in this morbid calculus. I look at my kids and I run a numbers game and think, how old will I be when they graduate? What about when they partner up or have kids? What's happening in the world to these now tiny people when I slip into decline? These are thoughts that make me weep. My youngest is still in daycare. So I get Bill's horror. And yet, I can't fathom rattling around for another hundred years. How grotesque. And so I keep stomping around the grounds that are familiar to most of us. I can wax philosophic about the value of life's brevity and then do what I can to suppress the thought that death is always pending. Bill has always felt the cold breath of mortality. Even as a teenager, he was preoccupied by death, and all the more so after he chanced across a Sunday supplement in the newspaper on cryopreservation. The article described the nascent idea 
that you could freeze and store human remains and that one day technology might make resurrection possible. Sedarov would have loved it. Bill certainly did. He was hooked. But around age 16 or 17, I bought a life insurance policy and wanted to make sure money was there to cryopreserve and maintain me in case I died prematurely. This was the early 1970s, and cryonics had only just crossed from the realm of speculative fiction to human experimentation. Most scientists scoff at the notion that we'll ever have the tools to bring anyone back. But for believers, it's just a matter of when. For decades, Bill has been wearing a silver tag on his wrist. As we're talking, he pushes up his sleeve to show it to me. Well, the bracelets say, do not autopsy, do not embalm, administer heparin, call this number. And that's for a very specific reason. Bill has plans for himself. So yes, I am signed up, fully funded to be cryopreserved, and I will be cryopreserved indefinitely until the future can figure out some way to reanimate me. Bill didn't stop at planning his own slice of eternity. He went all in. After high school, Bill decided to devote himself to the cause. He completed a program in mortuary science and got his license to be a funeral director and embalmer. He wanted to be able to cryopreserve people. Not long after, he moved to South Florida, where radical life extension was exciting more people. At a meeting for cryonics enthusiasts, he met a man named Saul Kent. Like Bill, Saul had come across cryopreservation in the media in an issue of Playboy and believed this was the ticket. The two men found kinship in their desire to forestall death. But it wasn't just about besting Mother Nature. They believed that if we could solve this death problem, we could untangle humanity's many afflictions. They were convinced they were on the brink of the biggest revolution in the history of medicine. We uh, talked about putting together, a, a first a charity is what we set up, hoping people would donate some money so we could do the research. They founded a charity, eventually naming it the Life Extension Foundation, to broadcast their belief that aging is pathological and not an inevitability. They were literally racing against time, but the pace of research is plodding. So they decided to take matters into their own hands. We self-experiment with medications. I take lots and lots of medications that have anti-aging properties, lots and lots of dietary supplements that may have disease-preventing properties, and, well, hormones, whatever else I need. Bill and Saul's Life Extension Foundation and its accompanying newsletter were a way to promote their core idea. Every day, men and women could reverse the process of decline with supplements. People were bothering us because we would write information about certain drugs, dietary supplements, but they didn't know where to get them. So we said, well, let's make something available to people because they're bugging us. So we accidentally got into the dietary supplement business. I mean, this was the go-go fitness crazed 80s. Think jazzercise, Flintstones chewables, the vitamin shop. I spent three years going on all kinds of radio shows, TV shows. I got to be real popular because very few people were into anti-aging back then. Suddenly, you started to see Bill all over the place. 
That infomercial feeling I have sitting in the church in Florida? Well, back in the 80s, Bill and his partners had ads and infomercials at all hours, all over the country. And then they got a big break when Bill's partner, Saul Kent, appeared as a guest on one of America's biggest talk shows. Merv Griffin, he had a show that lots of people watched all over the United States. He caught an interest in life extension. And he found that when he announced, I'm gonna have scientists on talking about living longer, his ratings would go through the roof. Merv Griffin's interest in life extension had their phones ringing off the hook. People who would call me up, literally high-level CEOs of New York Stock Exchange companies, and said to me, I never thought about taking a dietary supplement, and now I'm taking 50 of them. They started manufacturing their own brand of supplements, and it took off. Their organization had a pretty simple premise. Join us, and we can connect you to the latest medical tests, supplements, and drugs you need to fight off the ravages of time. There was just one problem, the FDA. That's after the break. In 1987, federal authorities raided the Life Extension Foundation's headquarters. Bill wrote about the experience in a Life Extension report published a few months later, saying that federal agents smashed through the glass doors of their store and entered their warehouse with their guns drawn. The agents seized hundreds of products, documents, computers, as well as 5,000 copies of their Life Extension Report newsletter. The Miami New Times reported on the FDA allegations that Bill and Saul had invented fake names and used P.O. boxes to import unapproved drugs and sell them illegally in the United States. Some of the substances were known to affect neurotransmitters and could be lethal. Eventually, a grand jury indicted each man on more than 24 counts of conspiring to import unapproved drugs, importing unapproved drugs, and disguising drugs as supplements. They were indicted on Bill's birthday, adding to his shabby view of the occasion. Each man faced up to around 80 years in prison. Throughout it all, Bill and Saul denied that they had done anything illegal. They maintained they were saving lives. For Bill and Saul, it had been a bruising and costly ordeal. But public scandal had its upside, publicity. Their mailing list grew, and they founded a new business, the Life Extension Buyers Club. Members paid a monthly fee that would afford them discounts on supplements and a monthly glossy, Life Extension Magazine. And Bill and Saul channeled their new earnings into death-defying research. To date, they've invested more than $100 million. One of their most handsomely funded projects is the Timeship. The foundation poured in $30 million, securing a huge plot of land in Texas to serve as a mecca for cryonics. An architect drew up plans for an elaborate village of immortals with space enough for 10,000 cryopreserved bodies. Bill thinks it doesn't need to be so fancy. He's just interested in ensuring a safe space to wait for science to progress. 
It would cost about $350 million to put that together, and no donor has stepped forward with that kind of money yet. But the bottom line is we don't need an elaborate building. We just need something that's very secure. When I shared this bit of history with my husband, he quipped, Florida is a sunny place full of shady people. Sure. But I think above all, this winding story points back to something more elemental. Bill's success, it's founded in the collective fear of death and a desperate wish that we can avoid it. Up until 1995, 1996, when I told people what I did, their response is, why are you worried about aging? And then something happened, and I don't know what it was, but when I started telling people what I did, they would look at me and they would say, I am terrified of aging, and they did not want to die. And Bill's faith is as strong as ever. Where do you find your pleasures? I used to take a weekend trip over a long weekend, you know, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and I don't do any of that anymore. Bear in mind, I'm 68 years of age, so my lifetime is rather limited, but there is a prospect of us finding a way to reverse aging in our lifetime, and that has motivated me to work pretty much every day of the week. His life is a discipline. He fasts for 16 hours a day. I normally don't eat till around 8 p.m. And then I have a regimen of, well, medications. Bill says that he takes about 100 different supplements every day. Vitamins and minerals, as well as more heavy-duty medicines. Metformin and rapamycin, dasatinib, which is a chemo drug. But some of us take it every couple months to remove senescent cells from our body. And then, of course, uh, I get my blood tested very frequently. In some cases, I'll get it tested every other day. I optimize every cardiovascular risk factor, every cancer risk factor, so that my odds of getting it are at least reduced or delayed. His regimen might sound radical, but his ideas about longevity are no longer on the fringe. They're being echoed by powerful social players. Silicon Valley investors, TED-talking scientists, influential futurists. Billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Peter Thiel are banking on longevity. And players as diverse as Google's Calico Labs and the National Institutes of Health are exploring ways to extend life expectancy. Given how much time and money Bill has spent on research to further his goals of living longer, I had just assumed that for him and those around him, science was at the center of their beliefs. But once I got to the church and started talking with its congregants, I realized their faith might not have been in science. Here's Dr. Ulri again. I don't care if the government shuts us down, what we're doing. We're going back to work. We're not wearing masks. Oh, by the way, we're not letting anybody in the office that's had a vaccine. Supplements? Check. Frozen organs? Fine. Wearing a fireproof hood over your head when you fly so that your brain is preserved in the event of an emergency? That's how Bill Falloon has been known to travel. But vaccines? This is Florida. I thought, heading into this, that these immortalists, transhumanists, would place their faith in science. But all these folks are clapping when Doc on stage boasts that he won't even treat his vaccinated patients. 
I did call up. Can I have an appointment? I heard you were. Nope. You had a vaccine? Oh, yes, of course I did. That's too bad. <laughs> call me in six months and I'll tell you if I'm accepting patients. Approval is running high in this unmasked room. And my first thought is, man, this is where I get COVID. And as an aside, I do. Right in time for Christmas. But on top of that, I'm wondering, well, if it's not science, what is their faith? That's after the break. The night that I visit the Church of Perpetual Life, there's a special service taking place. So the Remembrance of the Resurrectables is a cryonics uh, remembrance of all of those patients that are in suspension at this time. Each December, the Church recalls the names of their friends and fellows who succumbed before science solved the riddle of age and who've entered the long twilight of cryonic suspension. No one uses a crude term like death. It's just a pause. The Resurrectables are people whose bodies have given out. Yes, they're legally deceased, but have chosen to have their remains frozen and placed head down in giant vats of liquid nitrogen until such a time as we have the means to revive them. It could be 10 years, 50 years, 500 years, no one knows. But everyone here can agree that one day we will bring them back. Neil Vandery hopes to never be one of them. I personally have deep faith in never going into suspension. I simply look at that as a life insurance policy. Neil is one of Bill's devoted followers. He's been working with Bill since the founding of the church in 2013. Today, he's an officiator. Neil is a 61-year-old real estate broker. Like Bill, he appears more youthful than his years. He's tall with sandy gray hair, a father of seven who lives on the Gulf side of the state. When we first spoke over Zoom, they were just clearing away the debris from Hurricane Ian. But Neil isn't bogged down by ecological anxieties. He's dealing with a more pressing threat. His email signature reads, working to save lives through age reversal education. 35 or so years ago, I got a disease that they said that there was no cure for. And I found that what I didn't want to do ever was to die. Many people hear me say that I want to live to be 130. And they're thinking, oh, I'm going to be so decrepit and old, I won't want to live. But of course, we're talking about live to be 130 with the youthfulness of a 30-year-old person. Before he met Bill, Neil had been looking for fellowship. He wanted to commune with other people who also shuddered at the thought that one day we will lose all that we have and all that we are. I turned my focus away from business success and focused on finding other people that had the same desire and interest that I did. I had to realize I'm not the only one that wants to live an unlimited life to live forever. And there's other people out here too. A little over a decade ago, Neil found his way to Bill. They were living in different parts of Florida and decided to meet up. I packed up my wife and my kids and we just decided to take a vacation. This was uh, Christmas break. So we came over to the East Coast and I met with Bill at his apartment and we just started talking all day. And we went away late into the evening 
And I was just so full of energy with the ideas that he wanted to follow up on and the things that he wanted to do and being able to be a more integral part in the world of age reversal was just so very exciting that I didn't sleep at all that night. <laughs> sleep is like item number one for an immortalist. So an insomniac fervor was way out of keeping here. Which is of course something you don't want to do. You want to sleep and get your rest and it's so important to your immune system, but I was just too excited. Bill was just on the cusp of founding the church. He was going to create a meeting place for immortalists. Here's Bill. Well, a church is something that represents a vehicle towards immortality, and it's also a conventional way of getting people to join as a member. So we essentially have a congregation, and it's just a way for us to interact and then talk about the fact that there is another option than permanent death. From the start, Neil was on board. When I get together with people, I, I see people that I feel we could live together for the next 300 years or, or so or more. What we are, have created is a church family of people who are interested in the same things. A church is more than a place to get like-minded folks together. Bill, he could have published another newsletter, run a blog, hosted a speaker series, but he was going for something bigger, a vehicle for ideas that defy logic. To believe in immortality, you need more than science and supplements. You need conviction. I feel that we have to have faith in the researchers, faith in people to find the clues and put the puzzle together and find the way to be able to live an unlimited lifespan. Should we ever be put into a chronic suspension, we have to have faith in people of the future to bring us out of that suspension. And so this is where my faith is and many of the members' faiths are. It's in each other and it's in the people to come that haven't even been born yet that will do research that can help us continue on. Neil tells me that a large number of the congregants identify as Christian or Jewish. But in the sample I talk to, no one believes in any God. There's no hereafter, only the here and the long now, like Neil. I think it's such an awful idea that when we die, we're dead and that's it, that we have to make up things to believe in in order to lessen that, that horrible feeling of finally gone forever. For thousands of years, we've created these ideas of something after death in order to lessen that pain. But now for the first time in humanity's history, we have a real scientific chance to reverse aging, to eliminate the necessity of death, to live an unlimited lifespan. Neil is saying heaven is a defense mechanism and our love affair with it is what's keeping us from eternity. Bill's message to the church is that we don't need to anticipate the day. The glory, the kingdom, we're living it. Just look at modern life. Thermostats in our homes, abundant food on the table, cars and planes zipping us about. For Bill, these are wonderful achievements. And in many ways, they are. But they're hoarded and haphazardly distributed. To me, they're causing the mess we find ourselves in. But Bill is certain this will all be solved. The world ahead is one of green and plenty.
There will be abundant supplies of energy, no more carbon burning, no more emissions. In fact, the power from nuclear fusion will power the carbon removers. They'll have those around the world. They'll suck it all out. So those are the kind of technologies that just amaze me and give me so much motivation to feel we are going to have uh, immortality, meaning our bodies, or, or maybe we'll just be uploaded into a computer. Bill wants to race into the future. It's just going to get a lot better. It will be a world beyond any ability for us to comprehend today. It will be that spectacular. As I leave the church, I walk past a small group stationed by the front door. One woman reaches out and grabs me by the wrist. Did you get your message? She asks. She stares at me with this insistent gleam, and I wonder, did I miss something? Iodine levels, nuclear fusion. My head is too crowded to do much more than politely extract my arm. But I remember something Neil had said. You know, once a person who is interested comes to the church and see what we are, that they are always hooked with our message. I think about this as I drive back to my hotel through the dark. My message. My thoughts are stuck on what propels this group's optimism. It can't just be the cherry-picked good news or the wisps of scientific progress. This kind of faith is motivated by something deeper. I turn off the highway and have to hit the brakes. There's another car stopped in the intersection. A white woman is standing outside the open driver's door. Her mouth is wide, and as I roll down my window, I realize she is screaming. I look down, and inches from her strappy heels is the crumpled body of another woman. Darker skinned, dressed in the sort of monochrome uniform that the service industry demands. I start to get out of my car, but a crew of EMTs comes round the corner. So I get back in and keep driving. I don't know what became of that woman in the road. I reached out to Miami-Dade authorities, but I haven't gotten any answers. But in a flash, I got the message. We're never more than a breath away from losing everything. It's our fragility that's the terminal condition. Suddenly I see the church as not some sci-fi-infused factually suspect solution to the trials of growing old, but as a symptom of our most rabid fears. To take it all in, all the risks, all the hazards, the relentless proximity of death, it could make you crazy. So give it up. Surrender it to fantasy. Wrap it in a swaddling blanket. Tell yourself the story of how you'll never die. Next week, we'll meet the people who have found that story so convincing they've built their lives around trying to find a way back from death. In our next episode, The Resurrectables. When it's time for me to go, I will be all taken care of. I'm looking forward to being brought back, and I don't know exactly what's going to be there, but <laughs> whatever it is, I'll be glad of it. It's better than rotten. Seeking is written and presented by me, Katherine Rowland. Maya Croft is the senior producer. 
Our producers are Rob Dozier, Erica Gajda, and Tiffany Walker. This episode was edited by Grant Irving and Megan Dietrich. Megan Dietrich and Lizzie Jacobs are our executive producers. Fact-checking by Natsumi Ajisaka. Original music by Nolan Schneider. Mixing and music supervision by Sam Baer. Special thanks to Alex Zonerveld and Serena Chow.